And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drums? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. And today we are doing a silly episode because I still have not gotten through Kaikei, halfway at least. So we're making our way downtown. I'm 100 pages in. We're going to get there. It's just been hard to read, y'all, with my eyes. But today we're going to do Bibliomancy because I was thinking about how I've been staying sane lately, and a lot of it has been through meaning-making. So hopefully this can give you some tools to also stay sane. Maggie, what is your experience with Bibliomancy slash do you have any? You and I have done it really briefly together on the podcast before, and that is my only experience with it. Right. Okay. So had you ever heard of it before uh, that introduction on the podcast? I mean, I'd like heard the word, but not enough to have any sort of like context or definition outside of the idea that it was like magic adjacent meaning making that had to do with books. Okay, yeah. And for listeners, we will try to find you a good article on bibliomancy because I probably shouldn't be your first introduction to it. It's a thing that actual spiritual people do, like priests and stuff. <laughs> you know, like people who are uh, have studied certain spiritual paths, unlike me, who just kind of chaos is my way into life. But uh, it's just another form of (laughs) meaning making, kind of like tarot or anything else. And it's non-denominational, right? So there are people who are Christian who practice it. There are people who who are Jewish who practice it. It's essentially taking a text, generally a sacred text, flipping the page, and then making meaning out of the words that first catch your eye is my understanding anyway. But we'll find you a good article that actually explains it. So Maggie, I chose five books. And at first it was meant to be at random. And I like closed my eyes and picked the two at random. And then the last three, I just kind of like picked based off of gut feeling. Would you like to hear them? Yeah. Okay. So I've got Lilith's Brood by Octavia Butler. I almost picked that one too, but I didn't. That would have been really funny though. (laughs) That would have been perfect. I've got When I Am an Old Woman, I Shall Wear Purple, which is a collection of poems and short stories, I believe, that I have not actually read. But I'm really drawn to this picture of the old lady and the idea of her wearing purple. (laughs) I've got Hunting Girl by Morgan Rogers, which is, as longtime listeners may know, like my heart book, the book of my heart, quite literally. I've got Apocalyptic Witchcraft by Peter Gray, which I may have done on a Bibliomancy episode before. I don't know. I feel like it's made its way into the podcast in some fashion. (laughs) And I've got Waking the Witch, 
Reflections on Woman, Magic, and Power by Pam Grossman, which also has made its way into the podcast, I'm pretty sure. So almost all of these are podcast books. What about you, Maggie? I decided that if I was going to make meaning, I wanted to start with books, at least today, that like already had a lot of meaning, because that's not what I did last time. So I picked five of my favorite books of all time. So I've got Babel by R.F. Kuang. I've got A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. I've got Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. I've got The Prophets by Robert Jones Jr. And I've got Ahab's Wife or The Stargazer by Sina Jeter Nasland. These are very good choices. I'm excited to see what we come up with. Okay. So what we're going to do is we're going to open up random pages in this book and see if anything comes up. (laughs) So I guess I'll start because I turned my mic on and I've got here Apocalyptic Witchcraft. And I'm going to turn the pages here. Here, Kevin, hear this turning of pages. I hope that's not just awful noise. (laughs) All right. I'm closing my eyes. I'm opening up to a page. I'm letting my fingers wander. Nature and Christ. Okay. Okay. I don't know what meaning making to to make out of this quite quite yet. But I will tell you all that I've been having a really good time in life. I'm like finally financially stable. I'm good at my job. I have friends both afar and nearby. But I feel like I might be addicted to stress. I've <laughs> been doing some work around that, this addiction to stress as a, a, a trauma response. And my only, I, I only have a few tools for coping with this self-imposed stress. And part of it has been to notice the nature in New York City. So I've started like, I have this app that is designed by Cornell where you press a button and you can analyze bird sounds. So I'm like starting down the path of an amateur bird watcher. And I discovered a blue jay and a hawk and a morning dove, (laughs) as well as many sparrows. And then we have this idea of Christ. So nature and Christ, how do those things juxtapose? Immediately, I think of the fact that I I immediately go to like high school philosophy class, right? Where we're talking about the, the philosophers of the Enlightenment period and then... Yeah, I guess it would just be, what. what is after that? Oh, the classical liberal period, which I guess is partly Enlightenment during the revolution and how a lot of them were talking about how Christianity during this time and actually currently today is mostly built off of the idea culturally of a separation of nature, right? Nature is seen as bad and scary, and that's where we get some ideas of devilishness, demonness. You know, like the snake is who convinced Eve to eat the apple. But I also see, I guess, maybe a path when, we, when we're talking about Christ, who is not one of my deities, but is someone from what little I know of Christianity I can kind of vibe with. I see more of like a hippie sort of figure who could bring people in. And I guess I'm I'm thinking a lot about salvation when we talk about Christ and that relationship to nature. And so maybe nature as a way of redemption and salvation and just kind of highlighting spirituality in general, which is playing a 
kind of big role, even if it's not super deeply dug into in my life right now because I can't afford therapy. So yeah. (laughs) What do you think, Maggie? I mean, I think it means that you need to reread The Passion of Mary Magdalene. But... But uh, the other thing that I was thinking of is that it's interesting that you were talking about what was happening in the 19th century, because the other movement that was happening at the exact same time as that kind of classical neoliberalism was the Romantic movement, which was all about the fact that nature and God were one. So yeah, that's interesting. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about what that book just gave you? I think I feel good about it. I think think my view of Christianity is has enhanced and been complicated because I'm currently in a community right now that has a lot of Christian practitioners and some of them are a little fanatical, but it's also given me a much more nuanced idea of what the church represents. And I love that you brought up the fact that, because I meant to bring it up, The fact that a lot of Enlightenment philosophers were pantheists in a way, or I think it's called like, oh, I don't want to say it. I don't I don't want to get it wrong. Like Dadaism or something, or that's an art movement. I don't know. Okay, I'm wrong. Disregard everything. Maggie knows things. Maggie has studied art. (laughs) Um, I don't know things. I just happen to know this specific thing. (laughs) But yeah, a lot of Enlightenment philosophers did not necessarily practice Christianity in the idea of, like, there is one God. And a lot of people were escaping to the woods and finding meaning through nature. And I think, as Maggie and I have kind of talked about on the podcast before, even though we have such differing relationships to spirituality, like, nature is an easy access point to feel that feeling. So, yeah, I'm I'm interested to see where the rest of our session leads us and if it will be connected to this but i i think i'm good do you do you want to try a book sure babbles on top so i guess we're gonna start there which i think is gonna be extra interesting because this is the only fantasy book that i have on the tbr so or on the on the pile so like it'd be funny if like something that caught my eye was like very fantasy related okay what do i have i've got dictionary and i've got opium those are two words that kind of jumped out to me on that page. <laughs> Drugs and knowledge. Drugs and knowledge, bitches. Drugs and knowledge. It's hard. Here's the the hard part for me when whenever we do this is when if I pick books that I've read is like divorcing it from the context of what I know about the book. Because like in the context of this book, those words are like very powerful and make a lot of sense. So I guess to like, Use that as a jumping off point, but think of it as like a broader connection, not totally tied to the context. The this book is all about linguistics and it's all about colonialism. And this book is very much about the violence of translation, which is why dictionaries are so heavily present here. And it's specifically about sort of a fictional East Asian sort of area, very similar to China. And I think that I've been doing a lot of work lately again about colonialism and the history of imperialism and thinking about the myriad ways that it shows up in our everyday lives. And I've had to navigate a lot of new and interesting conversations at work about colonialism. The thing about my work is that I moved to a new job. For those of you who may not know, 
about six months ago. And so the way I've thought about and translated colonialism to my new community has changed, right? Because the historical context is different. Everybody has a different level of familiarity with it. And I've noticed that even though I'm not in as much of like a historically facing position, I'm much more of like the people facing person at work now, the conversations that I've had have really changed. And I've actually found them more frustrating and more challenging sometimes in this new community. And that isn't a bad thing. But I think that to me, this sort of reminds me about the fact that when we're understanding things and when we're teaching things and when we're explaining things, everybody's going to have their own unique key in to understanding that concept. And sometimes it comes from things that might seem completely divorced on the surface to that topic. And sometimes it's about talking about something that is clearly tied to that topic, but comes at it from a totally different angle. And I think that that's sort of what those two words with like some loose context about this book remind me of today. Interesting. How does that relate to opium? Because opium, and especially in the book, but also just in general, ended up being very much weaponized by the West against the East to kind of like subjugate the indigenous populations there while like bad business deals and stuff like that were happening. I'm not an expert on that specific history. And that's like a very oversimplified way of thinking about it. But the relationship of opium and it changed irrevocably basically after the West got their hands about it and on it and basically like were able to refine it and then like weaponize it against local populations. Interesting. I don't know if there's anything here, but I'm drawn to the idea of addiction and how that relates to colonialism. And I don't know how that necessarily relates to dictionary, but I'm imagining a Maggie at work talking to other people and trying to help rid them of addictive mindsets, I guess. Maybe through the use of new words, right? Like, it sounds like you have to do a lot of meaning making and map making and figuring out where these people's epistemologies lie, right? Like, where their worldviews are in order to try and lead them to a different thought pattern. It's been a lot of, like, using new metaphors and, like, thinking of new metaphors. It's It's about making that connection. And then also while you're in the middle of making that connection, also giving the appropriate appropriate caveats as well that like, this is my academic research, but also I'm new to this part of academic research. You know, I've only, I've only really been considered an expert in this thing for like 12 to 18 months. So like not very long. <laughs> my research is like so specific. I'm also a white person who is irrevocably tied to the oppressive nature of colonialism and imperialism, just given the way that like, our current societal structures work. So like trying to like find craft the balance between opening new doors and creating new meanings. And then also positioning the fact that like my quote unquote expertise here is driven by a very Western standard was mostly validated by other white people and like trying to also use my positionality as a way to say like, this is a new way to think about it, but my new way of thinking about it that we're having in this conversation isn't necessarily the end all be all while also like not undermining your own point. It's like a very interesting intersection to work in and I'm not perfect at it and I'm still learning, but it's just been like, 
I had my old community because I'd been working there much more, much longer. I had a much better sense of the pulse of like where generally speaking, most people I was going to be talking to were at and I'm just still learning it here. So it's been like a very interesting learning experience. Well, I'm glad that you have an opportunity to learn and I'm sorry if it's difficult as learning often is. So now we've got Honey Girl by Morgan Rogers. Kevin, I'm going to do the annoying flipping thing. So all I have is look. (laughs) Okay, so I guess for me, that's a call to perceive. Right? I think it's really easy, especially when we're stressed or caught up in sometimes meaningful work or, or we're excited about something, just like caught up in general, to not it's easy for me anyway to not have a full or accurate perception, right? Because I just am a person that gets so caught up in my emotions and I'm just here. And oftentimes in order to de-stress, I need to like actually disassociate a little bit from the outside world. So this idea of looking, right, to me really calls for taking stock of my environment. And taking a breath and taking time to see what's going on and what's going on around me. And then maybe also having enough perspective to view myself and my own actions as well. Even in moments like this where all I want to do is disassociate or just like ride the ride the chaos full on. Yeah, that's what I'm feeling. <laughs> No, I think that's a good interpretation, though. I think that it can be really hard to, like, remind oneself to slow down and look around and to bring the cliche full circle, you know, kind of like smell the roses and stuff like that. And stress is the kind of feeling that tricks you into feeling like perception and slowing down is the wrong thing to do. Whereas in reality, a lot of the times it's the right thing to do because then you can internally self-regulate and, like, actually problem solve and not get caught up in the whirlwind of it. I really just want to be in the whirlwind because that is where uh, uh, I as a person thrive is like in the chaos, but that's not the healthiest or the best for like long-term plans, right? Because then we're likely to make actions or or mistakes and yeah. Okay. (laughs) Maggie, do you want to go and show us your next book? Sure. Next on my list is A Tale of Two Cities. Which is, this book is really important to me. My grandma gave this to me when I was a junior in high school. And I've read this book like 11 or 12 times. It's like truly one of my all-time favorites. Ooh, ties that will tie you yet more tenderly and strongly to the home you so adorn. I know that that's like a little bit more than just a couple of words. But that was the like part that jumped out at me. I think that that actually feels really accurate to me right now. Because I think that I... Prior to 2021, had moved every single year of my life from 2013 on. And I spent a lot of time really reflecting on what the meaning of home was. I moved 3,000 miles across the country and really fell in love with my new state of Washington. But it also took me a really long time to feel like I actually set down roots here, partially because grad school was a whirlwind, partially because we only lived here for like two and a half years before the pandemic hit and was really intensive. 
partially again because we moved a lot in that and since we bought our house and have actually lived somewhere longer than 13 months I'm finally starting to feel tied to my home and like more tied to home as a physical location versus tied to the idea of home as kind of just being a person or the family unit that I've created for myself and I think that for a long time because what I had to cling to was just the family unit that I've built for myself I kind of forgot how wonderful it could feel to like have that physical safe space and that physical home And I'm like becoming more and more tied to the town that I live in. And I have friends here now for the first time in a long time. And the things that are in my garden are like things that I've grown myself and planted myself. And I I finally had time to like both plant things and then harvest and like see the whole cycle happen again. So I think that for me, that feels very accurate to a lot of the work and community that I've been doing for myself right now. And at the end of 22, I really um, prioritized that I wanted to like feel at home here and make those ties. And I think that I've really been pretty successful in that. And it's like very grounding and wonderful. So that speaks very closely, I think, to what I've been up to in the past like eight months. I'm so happy for you. I can see Maggie sitting in their home right now. It looks very cozy. It's really nice. I like I have an office and I have a library and there's books all over my house and like I I painted this room myself, so it's colors that I like. And my spouse and I are starting to talk about like remodeling our kitchen a little bit so that it it, like looks the way we want it to. And I think that's something I've also been thinking about is like the struggle and balance between trends and consumerism. And then also the fact that a home that aesthetically feels like yours is genuinely a way to make it feel more like a home and like trying to be making changes and making adjustments that don't just feed into consumerism or changing things for the sake of changing things. I'm lucky my home was built relatively new. There's nothing that like needs physically because it doesn't work anymore to be updated But because it's all stuff other people chose, it doesn't feel like mine in all of the spaces. So like trying to ethically find that balance for myself internally has been actually a really like positive, I think, internal conversation and just like way to think about values. And I think a reminder that like these the the topics of conversation about consumerism can be really complicated because the stuff that we have can reflect our personalities. And like, that is a good thing. My tarot cards keep telling, actually, no, my co-star. <laughs> this is a part of my like, looking at prompts and then journaling as a way of therapy has been talking a lot about consumerism. And I didn't really have any language to express that before. But as you're talking, Maggie, I feel like I'm gaining language to express maybe my personal relationship with consumerism because I guess as an ADD person who just like I am I am the type of person who will press the button until it stops feeling good just in and all things in life right and I, I recognize this about myself I do have a tendency to sometimes overconsume, but I also don't feel completely guilty about it because I recognize that like these things are cyclical for me and that is just a part of like how my brain works, right? And recognizing that can help me mitigate some of what could be negative side effects from that. But I think when I'm reading about consumerism, one of the I mean part of the negative aspects of it is is this idea of like never being happy with what you have, right? And also consuming and then dumping, right? Like 
having a one-off relationship with it versus a sustained relationship with whatever material object you're engaging with. And so when you're talking about a house, you're talking about remodeling your house, I'm like thinking back to like very low-level childhood trauma of (laughs) of watching my parents like redo their deck instead of helping me go to my dream school Um, or like buying a big TV or something, which has value in our capitalist society because when you redo your home and remodel it, the the price goes up, right? And that's like a a sound financial decision to make. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't make sound financial decisions. I mean, you do you. We're all just trying to just survive this hellscape. But the fact that you're thinking so much about this and like, how do I make this a home and not for economic value, but how do I make this the safest space for me? I don't know. That just feels meaningful and really nice. And I like that. And I'm going to think on that more and try to relate that back to my own relationship with consumerism. I think it's a really complicated conversation and it's a very insidious side of capitalism. And I think that it's often the way I see it talked about, not to like villainize people who often talk about uh, consumerism, but I think that consumerism is often talked about as some sort of like personal failing and not as a very purposeful symptom of capitalism that is being impressed in all of us for this idea to like keep the economy moving forward and the fact that we know that things are being made with less high quality on purpose so that you will have to buy more like I think that I am trying really hard to not assign personal guilt to myself when I sometimes fall for like a symptom of our society, you know, and like taking responsibility when stuff like that happens, because it's gonna happen no matter how much you think about it. But also not being like, oh, I'm suddenly this terrible person because consumerism got me and I fell for the trend. And now six months later, like, I don't actually like this piece of clothing. I just saw all these cool people on TikTok wearing it, you know, like, and I think that that kind of mindfulness and that kind of slowing down has really helped me because I used to be a lot more like Harmony and being addicted to the stress and like loving to live in the whirlwind. And I think in a lot of ways, I, I still am and I still can be that person, but I have found a lot more joy in like slowing down and being more mindful. And I think that for me, a lot of that started with thinking about what choices I was making in my personal life, just about small stuff and why. And was I in a position to make a different decision? And sometimes the answer to that wasn't yes. Like, because a lot of times, especially with consumerism, things that are higher quality, things that are, I don't know, there's just like a different price associated with it, right? Like sometimes you end up in fast fashion because you like have ripped your pants and you genuinely need a new pair of pants right now, right? Like, but that aspect of not having to like click the buy button right now and forcing myself to get used to sitting on consumerish choices actually ended up having a lot bigger ripple effects in my life of just like generally speaking slowing down about everything and understanding that the like decisions don't always have to be made in a split second and that making decisions in a split second is sometimes a really important skill and it's not something that I ever want to like kill about myself or anything or like totally change that I have that ability But just because I can do that and it usually works out okay doesn't mean that every decision needs to be made with that kind of urgency. I need a soundbite of just that, Kevin. We're going to put it on TikTok and then I'm also going to use it on days when I'm like, 
Harmony, slow down. Do less. (laughs) Trickle down therapy at work, friends. Trickle down therapy at work. (laughs) Maggie's therapist will tell them something and then Maggie will tell me things. And this is how it's going. And then I will share it. We will share it together with you, the masses. I'm hitting walls. That is what that noise is. (laughs) Shall we move to the next book? Yee. Okay, here we go. When I am an old woman, I shall wear purple. The caution is creeping in. The step is hesitant. Well, damn. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I feel like that sounds a little... um, At first, I was like, well, this is perfect. We're talking about slowing down, which is something, you know, I personally really need to do, right? But this feels a little bit, uh, like, negative, I guess, is the word. (laughs) I don't know. The caution is seeping in. The step is hesitant. I think that this is a warning to not let slowing down smother our intuition, which is also something... I struggle a little bit with. I am 28 now, as I proudly say, because I feel like I'm finally, I finally become an adult. (laughs) I finally realize these things where I'm like, oh, I don't have to do this to myself. That's just bullshit. Or I can just be happy with myself. I can love my body. These are wonderful things. I feel like I understand some of these life lessons on a much more visceral level now that I'm in my late 20s officially. But intuition has always been hard for me because of the traumatic experiences and abuse I faced as a child, in part, and also just because, like, I'm a femme person in the world, and, you know, we're we're often taught, and I think mass people are too, to not trust our, their intuition, but I do think it's different, and I think it's to a perhaps lesser extent. Yeah, we're often taught to not trust our intuition, and for me... The first step of trusting my intuition has always been like, okay, we'll do the action, right? I learned that as like a preteen was like, oh, okay, I can make good decisions. I'm just going to do the thing and not overthink it and not have anxiety about it. And I think that's part of where even though I know the stress is bad for me, even though I know that sometimes by overworking myself, I'm perpetuating harmful cultures, right? I'm I'm perpetuating capitalism. I'm letting it get me even though I shouldn't, even though I'm too smart for that stuff. I feel like this is a calling to like still be mindful of intuition and maybe it's hopeful because maybe throughout this whole session we're learning that slowing down is good, right? But slowing down does not mean necessarily that I need to be fearful or let anxieties creep in. That's also what I got from that. I think that the difference between the idea of slowing down and then the passage that you just read is that what I have found at the very least is that when slowing down works best for me, it's empowering because it's deliberate. It's like my choice to press the brakes and be like, okay, I'm going to think about this. I'm not going to let myself overthink about this, which as somebody who has severe general anxiety disorder is really hard for me. And is part of what makes slowing down challenging because it's easy to get into that space of overthinking. But I think that when it's going the best, it's because it's entirely my choice and in my control. And I think that sometimes living fast and living hard like that 
can also do those same things as long as that feels authentic to you and what is working for you. And it's a choice that you are deliberately making in a specific circumstance rather than something that you feel forced to do to keep up or get ahead or like do this or be better than that person. And I think that for me, I'm really good at living fast, but it empowers the parts of me that are overly competitive, that are overly egotistical, that want to get ahead for the wrong reasons. But I think that slowing down just for the name of slowing down can let fear creep in. So it's about like having control in an appropriate level on all steps of like the decision making process. And that's really hard because our brains like don't actually like to let us be in control that much. There's like hormones and shit and emotions in there that are like, wait, 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 wait. Or at least maybe that's just true for me. My brain doesn't exactly work right, so. I don't know how anyone's brain is supposed to work right in our current world. I mean, yeah. I'm sorry. You're all beautiful people and all of your brains are beautiful. But I think that everyone's going to be fucked up uh, no matter how privileged your situation is because we live in a very crazy world. All right, Maggie, do you want to do your next book? Okay, so I'm going to do braiding sweetgrass. Oh, it was a page that I had marked off. The line that jumps out to me is I love listening to them to consider, or I love listening to them consider such a question. I love that. Cause I think that like, even the way that I misspoke it, I think says so much about me and like this idea that I need to be in charge of and like driving a conversation And that like active listening sometimes doesn't always have to even have you really be part of the conversation that sometimes you need to take, I need to take so much of a step back that like I'm listening and I'm absorbing information without necessarily have to directly engage with that information or those people in the moment that like sometimes you just need to absorb information and think about things. And then take it with you, you know, like you also can't always help other people process new information. You can't always help other people learn. Sometimes all you can do is just like observe an interaction, learn from it what you can and move on. And that for me is really hard because I've been trained in informal education for my entire career. And my entire career is based off this idea of like learning and teaching and building empathy together and like figuring out some of the best ways in order to like help it fruit for most people or a lot of people at the very least. But that's not always going to be every situation. Sometimes you just have to listen to other people consider a question and take from that what you will. And that's the whole interaction. And that can still be beautiful. Wow. Okay. I had a lot of thoughts when you were just saying that. So your idea about active listening, at first I was like, thinking about my tendency to want to fix things, right? And and wanting to jump in and tell somebody something <laughs> instead of just like sitting there and letting them talk and letting them get whatever they need off of their chest and like letting it affect me and how difficult that is, especially as like a person with ADD. <laughs> but I feel like what you're talking about even more is like the benefits that it gives you as a person to just listen. And I don't mean just like you, Maggie, I mean the royal you, to just listen and process something fully, to engage with it on your own and accept that like 
you might not be done processing this in this moment. Maybe this is something that you have and you need to come back to, which is something since I've gotten older, I think I've gotten better about, but is is still a skill I'd like to work on, right? This idea of continuing to process, of keeping with an idea and allowing it to like really formulate and cook. And I think too, the other thing that it reminds me of is that always having to jump into every situation, every conversation comes with the presumption that I'm right that like I have something valuable and worthwhile to share. And I know that that sounds weird because it's like, obviously as a human being, I have things that are valuable and worthwhile to share, but it is also equally true that that isn't true about everything. (laughs) Like my opinion on climate change is not equally as valid to the opinion of like a climate scientist on climate change, for example, or even my spouse who works in climate science currently in like, Uh, developing new power sources, right? And like, that is sometimes so hard to remember in the moment, at least for me. And I think that's especially true as somebody who's femme femme presenting and in positions of power. I often feel like I have to be right in order to be taken seriously, because I'm constantly needing to position myself as being the right person to be in that moment. But that is both so harmful to me as a human, because like, I'm not always right. And I am fallible. And I am always learning. And then also to other people, because jumping in and assuming that I'm right, and presuming that I'm right, even when I'm not actively like thinking like, oh, that person's wrong, and I need to correct them, because that's often not how I'm like thinking when I jump into a conversation ultimately invalidates their human perspective on things. And, and then it gets really complicated too, right? Because it's like, then when you're talking about things at a moral level, where it's like, I'm jumping into this conversation, because I morally disagree with you. And I do think that you're wrong. When you're coming into a conversation from that perspective, you're probably not going to get anything productive done on either side anyways, right? Like you're just going to devolve into an argument. Because in my experience, at the very least, there are very few actually productive conversations that start with I'm right and you're wrong. And because it's a moral thing, I kind of think you're a bad person because I think that you're wrong. And that I don't think is a bad thing in all cases. Like, I think sometimes you don't have to engage. I think sometimes you can just be like, nah, I like I don't want to engage with this right now. I think you're wrong. I, I don't need to engage with something that's going to harm me to like engage with you about But I found that when I can like get out of my own head and get out of my impulses to just like shut the fuck up and listen to an entire conversation and not insert myself, sometimes it's the conversations that I get the most out of and I learn the most out of. And then I can take some of that better into like the next time we're talking about that same topic, even if it's with different people. I want to really quickly, even though I know we're pressed for time. You're talking about conversations, and you you mentioned this idea that you don't need to have a voice in every conversation, right? That, like, your opinion isn't as great as a climate scientist's. And I just, I need to talk through this a little bit <laughs> as, I, as I insert my opinion. Just because, just because, wait, wait, wait. Just, no, but I want to clarify. It's not that my opinion isn't as great. It's that it might not be as right. I'm equally as entitled to my opinion, but it might not be as informed of an opinion. I agree. Okay, yeah. Because we're always in conversation, whether we like it or not, whether we know or acknowledge it or not, right? Because 
we're in an ecosystem and everything going on in that ecosystem has an effect on us. And I think for me, what you're talking about with this, what you're talking about with this passage seems to be talking about really calls to this phrase that my friend Amaris used once. For more on Amaris, go back to season one, but remember that we had really shitty editing skills back then. She once said to me that you got to like take space and make space. And this is funny because both her and I really struggle with this idea of making space. And as a femme presenting person, right, like I really struggle with that balance of if I give too much space, how much are people going to eat away at me, right? Like how how tiny of a corner are they going to push me in? But I think when you're, what you're talking about, right, with this idea, like my voice might not be important right now. But that doesn't mean that, like, you still can't take that information, right, and engage with it. You're still conversing with it inside yourself, but you're all, you're giving more room to allow for more information to come in. Yeah. Okay. I, I, is there anything else you want to say on that, or should we go to the next book? <laughs> I think we can go to our, our, our last book. Okay. We'll, we'll engage with that more, listeners. Because I think that that's something we need to process more. <laughs> this book is Octavia Butler's Lilith Brood. I'm opening it up. I'm feeling for a word. My word is awoke, headed, and mumbled. So I have three words. Immediately when I think awoke, I think back to the original meaning of woke. <laughs> which apparently didn't um, start necessarily... In this time period, I think that I read somewhere that it has origins in the way that we use it. Maybe at like turn of the century. I don't know. I don't know. We'll put some article in there to clarify that. But yeah, I'm thinking of this idea of waking up, questioning structures, questioning the way that we have always thought about things, which I think is what Maggie and I are talking a lot about right now, even though we're focusing it very much on mental health, because that's what Harmony needs. Headed. Headed reminds me of what we're talking about in terms of movement, this idea of slowing down. But headed, I don't know, does it convey a sense of urgency to you? I think to me, it more ties back to our conversations about deliberation and like, it might not be urgent, but it's a choice. You are headed in a direction. But then what about mumbling? Because mumbling feels a little bit disempowering, right? Because you have something to communicate, but it's almost like you're not sure or you're unable to communicate it to your full ability. I wonder if it can tie, though, into that conversation about taking space and making space and like learning the places where your voice is necessary in a conversation versus the places where maybe it needs to be more more internal processing and internal engagement with yourself and how I think that a lot of times I find myself stuck in the middle of those two things. That can sometimes be a hard choice to make in the moment. And I think that mumbling could potentially resemble that like place where you're not really sure in the moment, what the right thing to do is. Awoke, headed, mumbling. So I guess putting that together and with the help of Maggie's analyzation, that feels kind of hopeful to me, right? Like, maybe we're not there yet. Maybe I'm not there yet. (laughs) Maybe I'm constantly going to be wondering whether I'm saying too much or too little. But 
I'm taking a step forward and I recognize that there's a problem and that's the first step to growth. I think you're headed in the right direction and you ha- and the direction that you're headed is is being spearheaded by your values. But just being headed in the right direction doesn't mean that there won't be mistakes that happen along the way because mistakes are human, you know, like, and that's okay. That is okay. I wonder, is, is there anything else we've talked about that has kind of hinted at mistakes? I think that to me, it does continue to remind me of the conversation of like, I don't know, assuming one's right all the time and how that can be a mistake. I don't know. I think it's just really difficult to live in a brain that is, you know, necessarily concerned with itself and keeping your body alive. And then also trying to be connected to other people, right? Because like your brain is designed to put you at the top of the hierarchy of yourself. And I think that like unprogramming that and like unchanging that way of thinking is hard and that there's like a lot of missteps that can be made, you know, like I think that every conversation we've had today has been riddled with mistakes that we probably made mistakes while we were talking, but they're mistakes that are on the path to like growth and deliberation and self-awareness. And like, as long as we can take those with respect and humility, there'll be mistakes that are helpful to us rather than mistakes that are harmful to us. Hearing you say that reminds me of this metaphor that I keep using about ecosystem, which is something that I clung to from braiding sweetgrass. And it reminds me of a conversation I recently had with a coworker who was giving me more context about our job and all of the problems within it. And she said, you know, things go smoothly when everyone does their job, their exact job, right? Because then no one's like overdoing it. No one's doing too little. And to me, that that goes back to this idea of the ecosystem, right? Because you're t- you were talking about hierarchy and how we all have to kind of put ourselves first in that hierarchy. But I feel like it's not un- it's not always unethical to put yourself first, right? Especially if you're recognizing that everyone is doing the same and that you have an effect on everyone and everyone has an effect on you, right? So when you realize that like you're a part of a larger system, and you're prioritizing your role within that system, I think that maybe things could be okay and could operate smoothly. Yeah, I mean, I think that that makes a lot of sense. I think that there's like a lot of nuance to all of this in the sense of like, where do I and the ego fit into community? How do I take care of my community without overstepping? I think it's all about like understanding place again. And then also knowing that the ecosystem doesn't have to be fixed, that your place doesn't have to be fixed and that you're allowed to change and shape and morph. But that changing and shaping and morphing is going to come with growing pains. And like those growing pains don't have to be a bad thing. They're an inevitable part of life, but it's just good to be aware of them. I don't know. I feel like I'm talking like I'm some very self-actualized person and like I don't all, all, like struggle with this all day, every day. No, I love it. It's the therapy. <laughs> I see the therapy at work. Thanks, Sandra. We love you. Thank you for your trickle-down therapy. Much better than trickle-down down economics. We still therapy for all, though. 
Yeah, yeah. It'd be cool to one day live in a society where if you wanted to have therapy, it didn't have to trickle down to you through your one friend who can afford it. Because <laughs> I can trickle down therapy to a lot of people. Oh, boy. <laughs> they did a whole How I Met Your um, Father episode on that because I watched that show even though it's bad. Okay, back to the thing. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, listeners. I think we're awakening. That's all. We didn't get to do Waking the Witch or Ahab's uh, Wife, which is fond books for both of us. Oh, did we do Ahab's Wife? No. Okay. Well, that's okay. I didn't do The Prophets either. Oh. Oh, wow. Oh, well, this is very sad. But we got to call it a day because we got lives and stuff. And we will try to post more regularly. But we probably won't. (laughs) But we're trying. (laughs) I'd apologize, but... Capitalism is hard and life is hard and time zones also very tricky. Time zones are indeed hard, especially when you work irregular hours like both of us kind of do. Yeah, kind of opposite schedules. We're doing our best, friends. It's okay. Next season, we'll try to be a little bit more aware of our capacities. So at least you'll know, hopefully. (laughs) Is that all for now, folks? I think that's all for now, folks. We will try to get back to you with... Kakei. 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 I don't know why. I think I read it as... Ka- yeah. I just have mild... Yeah. Reading disabilities for real those. But I'm going to get it someday. I believe in you. One day's one day the Ks won't trip you up anymore. You know? I, like, legitimately... Yeah. In my mind's eye... The words are, the things are all jumbled. But that's I'm all sorry, gentle teasing. <laughs> gentle teasing with love. <laughs> Nobody think I'm being mean to Harmony, please. Please don't think I'm awful. <sighs> okay, well, this is a fun episode for, for Kevin to edit. If you can I don't even that. know if Kevin is, yeah, I don't even know if Kevin is editing it. So good luck, everybody. Goodbye. 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 Maybe I'll be unedited. That's fine. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website rebelgirlsbook.club and clicking read along with the show. You can follow us at rgbcpod on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.